Yeah, it's a privilege to be here. Thank you so much, John, for that wonderful introduction. Now, um, is my voice um, being amplified? Can you, can you hear me in the back? I, I once gave a whole lecture at the Augustine Institute where, where no one ever heard. Um, not a word. It was in the front row. Um, so you really do, if, if somehow in the middle of the lecture, that, that spooked me ever since. So if in the middle of the lecture, um, you can't hear me in the back because I'm not talking to the mic, you've got to say something to stop me. Now, admittedly, the people in the front were sadder than the people in the back because the people in the front actually heard the lecture. <laughs> so they, they didn't like that. You know, I, I'm gonna, this lecture is really a very simple thing, and, and our whole purpose is to understand what the virtue of studiousness is. I mean, that's, that's gonna be the whole goal of the lecture, and um, I mean, if there's boring parts, I, you can just know that this comes from a longer thing, so I cut out the interesting parts, and I left only the boring parts, because I knew, I knew I, uh, if we're gonna be studious today, we, we gotta be a little boring, you know, so but I, I did that. This is, a, this is really from a longer piece. Um, Okay, and, and part of the emphasis of the piece really is that, is that we aren't going to have the Christian virtue of students as well, the Holy Spirit. So I, I'm going to mention um, the Holy Spirit briefly in, the, in my introductory part of the, of the lecture here, but, but really the, um, the whole, the whole uh, that's really the setting for, for this, is that Christ, when he sends the Spirit, inaugurates the kingdom, uh, that makes possible um, for us to uh, be studious in, in the sense that Aquinas has in mind. Uh, you know, which isn't, it's not the sense that, that it's not like um, necessarily um, the sense that we have when we think of studiousness. Okay, so the outpouring of the Holy Spirit is the source of the Christian virtue of studiousness. John Webster observes, by the work of the Holy Spirit, which Jesus Christ, our Savior, pours out richly, the impotence and enmity of the intellect are decisively countered. Desire is redirected. A new principle of intellectual activity is established, and the intellect set upon a new course. When Christian believers are studious, this is, quote, a fruit of the Holy Spirit's work of regeneration and sanctification. And it brings about, quote, within the realm of created intellect, an unexpected, indeed astounding reality, namely the new nature which is being renewed in knowledge. That's Colossians 3.10. Now what, however, is the virtue of studiousness? In what follows, I attempt to give an answer to this question by means of two steps. First, since the significance of studiousness for the Christian moral life shines out in Paul Griffith's recent book, Intellectual Appetite, I sketch the main lines of his book. So that's gonna be the first part. And then the second part, I examine St. Thomas Aquinas' theology of the virtue of studiousness and of curiositas as its opposed vice, with particular attention um, in that part to Aquinas' biblical references. I think those are particularly instructive. Now, unfortunately, a few contemporary thinkers have addressed the virtue of studiousness or its opposed vice, curiositas. But Paul Griffiths offers an important exception in his eloquent 2009 book, Intellectual Appetite, A Theological Grammar. I, I read the book and I said, I wish I could write like that, but he's British. You know, if, if you're British, it doesn't count. You know? It doesn't at all. Um, as Griffiths points out, today the term curiosity functions as a term of praise, since we consider that curiosity leads to intellectual quest questing, creativity, and discovery. Griffiths notes that in David Hume's Treatise of Human Nature, 
Curiosity indicates an open-minded desire to know the truth. Indeed, curiosity today names a virtue. Um, whereas, of course, in the medieval period, it did not. Um, and studiousness, when indicative of a lack of well-rounded sociability, names a vice. You know, the vice of nerdiness. Um, and and I, I've got that vice big time. Uh, so, inquiring, inquiring into the origins of the Christian view of studiousness. Uh, Griffiths identifies an exegetical tradition that built up around 1 John 2, 16, which distinguishes the lust of the flesh from the lust of the eyes. As he explains, if the eyes can lust, desire inappropriately to see, then surely they can also seek vision or knowledge chastely and rightly. So that'd be the virtue. He adds in the that the Christian concern about desiring knowledge in a wrong way comes also from the ancient Greek, uh, Greco-Roman philosophers. For the Stoic philosophers, Seneca and Apuleius, for example, the vice of curiositas is, in Griffith's words, quote, a crass, vulgar, and dangerous appetite for knowledge no one should want. As soon as I read that, I thought, gosh, what, what knowledge is that? I sort of, you see, that's, that's the, um, the vice of curiositas <laughs> manifesting itself in me. But, uh, a lot of, you know, knowledge no one should want, you know. Um, Griffiths probes Augustine's distinction in, in De Trinitate 10 between the studious soul which loves that which it knows and therefore desires to know it more, and the curious soul which loves the unknown and therefore seeks to make it known. On this basis, Griffiths offers the definition of the vice of curiositas. Quote, curiosity is appetite for the ownership of new knowledge. Curiositas seeks to grasp completely rather than to know more fully. And so curiositas reflects pride and power rather than love and wonder. Knowledge becomes a commodified and claimed object rather than being a deeper understanding of a beloved entity in which understanding all people share by right. Griffiths remarks that, quote, the studious do not seek to sequester, own, possess or dominate what they hope to know. The studious want instead to participate lovingly in it, to respond to it knowingly as a gift rather than as a potential possession, end quote. But the curious treat reality as though it were there to be seized and dominated. The studious treat reality as though it were a divine gift with its own integrity and inexhaustibility. Griffith's comments, quote, the curious inhabit a world of objects which can be sequestered and possessed. The studious inhabit a world of gifts, given things, which can be known by participation, but which, because of their very natures, cannot be possessed. Whether we, after I read that, I called up Paul and asked him if I could have free copies of his books, but he said no. <laughs> Whether we are Christians or not, we necessarily hold that some human appetite should be encouraged and others discouraged. As a Christian, Griffiths affirms that humans possess a shared human nature that's theologically ordered to a certain end or goal, so that appetites that hinder the attainment of this goal should be discouraged or reformed. In his view, quote, appetite is rooted in wonder and has intimacy with some creature or an ensemble of creatures as its end. He argues that our nature is made for praising the, gift of God, the gifting God, for praising God, 
Since we are creatures who are amagenes gay, especially intimate participants in divine gift, end quote. On this view, the appetite for knowledge properly seeks, quote, the participatory conformity of the knower to the known through accurate judgments about what is known. In no case, Griffiths emphasizes, should what is known be possessed by the knower as an object. Griffiths contrasts intimate or participatory knowledge with what he calls mathesis. Um, I didn't look that up. I assume it's a Greek, it's a Greek um, word, but I didn't, I didn't look it up. They showed you that I didn't go to Christendom. But, um, but I, I, anyway, it's mathesis. The quest, quote, rooted in curiositas for exhaustive knowledge based on following the right method, a quest devoid of wonder and surprise, and aimed at isolation of the object studied with the goal of eventually, quote, knowing everything that's to be known and knowing it perfectly without blemish or error, end quote. This understanding of knowledge as meant to be given away and as meant to participate intimately as in the reality known leads Griffiths to a theology of scripture or the liturgy, the scripture and the liturgy. According to Griffiths, scripture cannot merely be a bounded or owned set of words, but must instead be, quote, a set of meanings or verbal actions which arises from and is attested to by liturgical proclamation and confession. When understood rightly, scripture is inseparable. This is his main point, really. Scripture is inseparable from the way in, ways in which its words are given away, as in the liturgy. Griffiths calls the result scripture liturgy, or liturgy scripture. He notes that the first giver of these words is God. And then humans, too, give these words, both as authors and as editors, and as preachers to the whole world. Studious Christians then study and love the scriptural words that God has given in order to participate more deeply in God through Christ and his spirit, and to give back the triune God's words and the liturgical praise and proclamation that in turn gives these words to the whole world. So to have the virtue of studiousness, what Scripture is saying, he's saying that it's to be committed to grateful receipt or receptivity and to stewardly use of what you learn Stewardly, being a steward of what you learn, passing it on, participatory intimacy and wonder rather than ownership, an exhaustive conceptual mastery of the gifts by which God reveals himself and his love. Griffiths engages, he loves Augustine, he, he doesn't really like Aquinas that much, so, I don't, so he, he'd be mad at me for bringing him so much into this Aquinas lecture. But, but really, um, Aquinas is an Augustinian on these matters. Griffiths engages Augustine's distinction between wisdom and spectacle. Spectacle's not good. But I did watch a Super Bowl yesterday, though. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, latter, the latter of which engage, which lacks reality but attracts the curious. How is it that the studious person can identify what knowledge of sensible things will satisfy his or her yearning to know reality? How, how can the studious person do that? Griffiths proposes two principles. The degree that the sensible things are fallen indicates the extent to which knowledge of them will not satisfy us, since they will not have what he calls the iconicity and the reality that they should have. And, that's the first principle, and then the second one, the degree that sensible things participate in God affects how much our desire to know will be satisfied by knowing them. 
So if we are truly stu studious, we will strive to know sensible creatures that participate in a maximal way according to their kind in God. Such creatures are icons of the divine beauty to which they give finite expression. When we know them properly, we are always at the same time able to move beyond them to their infinite source, rather than having our minds trapped idolatrously by finite things. Since the greatest sensible thing to know is Christ's humanity, it follows for Griffiths that, quote, all other iconic arrays must be such because of the relation they bear to that one. And, quote, some are exceedingly intimate with it, above all Mary and the Eucharist. Now, you can tell that Griffiths is a theologian, so he's, um, but don't worry, he's not trying to say that everyone has to, to study theology or philosophy. That's not, that's not his point. I mean, not everyone has to, like, he's not saying everyone has to become a theologian or philosopher. So, does the, this account that he's giving, though, pr provide any room for knowing non-sacred things? Not, nothing in his view is purely secular. If by that is meant autonomous from the gift in God and not icon iconically representative of God's infinite wisdom, goodness, and beauty. But Griffiths urges that we should seek to know quote, the works made by human hands whose beauty gives them a high degree of participation in God, but which have nothing explicitly to do with the events in which God's presence is at a high degree of intensity. All this he means, by this he means that um, uh, works, he thinks we should be quite willing to know the the beautiful and, and the um, highest works made, made by human hands, for example, the builder, the artist, even the gardener, the cook, and so forth. Furthermore, he proposes that each human face is an icon of Christ's face. He adds, quote, iconic arrays at the second remove are those constituted by the cosmos, damaged though it is in his view by the fall. The scope of studious knowing therefore, is as broad, in his view, as creation. Though it's centered always upon God, and therefore it tends to the ways in which particular creatures are specially related to God. Or, in the case of Christ's humanity, hypostatically united. <coughs> now, by contrast, so he set up what studiousness is, by contrast, mere spectacles that offer no real food for wisdom reflect the fallen aspect of ourselves and of the created order. Such spectacles seek to conceal the divine giver and to lock us in an exclusive and exhaustive relationship with sensible things which are thereby deeply misused. If we assume ourselves to have mastered a sensible thing, we, do not, we, only, we not only do not see it in its true reality, as distinct from our image of it, but we also become bored with it and seek something new. We certainly do not attain the intimacy with it that is the character, characteristic mark of studious knowing we fall short of the true intellectual life, which in fact must be a matter, quote, of constant wonder and constant stammering. I, I do the latter part well. <laughs> but before the openness of what we study to the God who made it. Referring all things to God, that's, that's the message. That's what a studious person is able to do. Griffiths emphasizes that in knowing changing things, we must allow ourselves to be led upward to unchanging things. Otherwise, we'll become stuck in the realm of changing things and we'll devote ourselves to questing for novelties, or more specifically, for things that are partly new and that therefore can be, in a certain way, newly known. When this situation pertains, the process of seeking knowledge replaces the actual attainment of knowledge. 
since whatever knowledge we attain immediately ceases to be novel, and we then move on to something else. The tendency of our minds to require ever new novelties manifests itself in numerous industries today, not, not including pro football. Uh, the at least I don't think so. Since curiosity for new things cannot satisfy the mind, curiosity can only be, quote, a self-replicating desire that cannot be satisfied and that must lead to an agonizing restlessness. By contrast, studiousness leads to the God who, quite unlike changing things, can satisfy the mind via stable and inexhaustible intimacy, participatory intimacy. Studious persons will also seek to know and be intimate with, in a contemplative um, way, changing things but only from within the recognition that such things participate in God and therefore cannot really be mastered or owned because we're just stewards, right? As Griffiths points out, this pattern is precisely that of our contemplative participation in the liturgy, which shapes the habit of studiousness. For its part, the liturgy itself participates in the changeless but not static relational love of the, of the triune God. In such participatory intimacy, studious Christians come to know both God and creatures more deeply, and in this sense come to know previously unknown things, though our goal is always deeper intimacy rather than novelty, let alone control. Now for Griffiths, the fundamental way in which we learn studiousness is through the liturgy. This, this fits with my emphasis on the Holy Spirit, but I've, I've taken some of that out. Where human words are given back in praise to, to the God who is the giver of all that is. The key to moving from curiosity to studiousness, the key move, the key shift, is turning away from the proud desire to own our own insights, to have them be ours, to master, and to have dominion over them. The conversion to studiousness requires letting go of knowledge as exhausted mastery which implicitly involves positing the non-existence of God, because God can't be mastered, and God can't be exhaustively known. So, so you see, we're all, we're all learners here. I mean, we're, all, we're all just humble learners. There are, there are really no, um, once, once we, if we become curious, it's then that we, we, we make a strong claim and as if it were about us. It's really about knowing things is about, is about God. It's, it's a way of um, being a steward. So the studious person seeks knowledge as participatory intimacy in inexhaustible and unownable realities. Everything is like that. Realities that the studious person recognizes to be icons of God. Icons that we can enjoy in a stable relationship of ever-deepening intimacy only if we make no claim of mastery over them. And only if we seek to know God who reveals himself through them. As such, Griffith's emphasis on participation, wonder, and gift, and his insistence that each creature, quote, has the value it has and the possibilities of intimacy with humans proper to it, only because its face is a particular icon of God's presence, is grounded in the revelation of the giver in Christ and in the liturgical wonder, praise, and participatory intimacy with God, with God that Christ makes possible by forgiving sins and converting us through his spirit to a life of self-gift in imitation of him, the Lord. 
Christ converts us. The point is that Christ converts us away from our curious distorting of the desire to know in our, our pride, our, our rejection of intimacy, and our favoring of cold power, mastery, and autonomy, insofar as we can get it. Christ does this. He converts us through the forgiveness of sins and through the outpouring of the Spirit. And Christ thereby reorders our knowing. He changes us so that we can truly know God. And, of course, that's talked about in Jeremiah 31, you know, that they will, they will all come to know God. We thereby obtain a renewed intellectual appetite geared to liturgical praise. Now, in case you're about to give up here, um, we've reached the second half of the paper, so things are moving, moving along. And now, now I'm going to do, um, do the Aquinas section. And before you know it, you guys, this, this is um, going to be all, all over with. So, so now I'm doing um, Thomas Aquinas, um, you know, my, the saint to whom I owe so much personally, on studiositas and curiositas. Let me now connect all this with Aquinas' very succinct reading of the virtue of studiositas and its supposed vice. According to Aquinas, the virtue of studiositas is a potential part of temperance because it moderates the desire to know. That's why it's connected with temperance. Aquinas devotes though, only two articles to studiositas. His main point, of course, is that the virtue of studiousness moderates the natural human desire to know by ensuring that the mind applies itself to the right things in the right way. Now, in his first article on studiousness, Aquinas cites four biblical texts, and um, those four, I'm gonna, I'll just list them here, are Romans 13, 14, put on the Lord Jesus Christ and make no provision for the flesh to gratify its desires. Jeremiah 6, 13 in the Vulgate, for from the least of them to the greatest, all study covetousness. Proverbs, wait, all study, um, I think, let me come back to that. Proverbs 27, 11, Vulgate, study wisdom, my son, and make my heart glad. And Matthew 6, 21, quote, for where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. Reflection on these texts can help us greatly, I think, to appreciate Aquinas' theology of studiousness. So first, Jeremiah 6.13 bears witness to our condition of sinfulness, including sinful intellectual appetite. Um, and, you know, this is that we all study, from the least to the greatest, we all study, we, we put our minds to um, covetousness, to, to trying to, to uh, uh, mastery, to ownership. Our, our minds are not put toward seeing things as in a stewardly way, or um, in a sense of like participating in things and realities, or just sharing sharing knowledge, but are put toward um, a self-seeking way. So it points forward, though. Um, Jeremiah six points forward to Jeremiah thirty-one's prophecy of the new covenant, the forgiveness of sins, and the renewal of the people's minds to know God. Proverbs twenty-one eleven. That's the second text urges us to seek wisdom as the path of avoiding sin, and therefore also, given our fallen condition, signals the need for the outpouring of the Holy Spirit so that we will turn from sin and be able to really study wisdom as, it, as Proverbs commands. The two New Testament texts that in turn bear witness also to the inaugurated kingdom of, of Jesus Christ. Jesus reminds us that, quote, where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. 
And obviously, so that's the third text from Matthew 6. And if our heart or intellectual desire is not focused on treasures of heaven, and of course we've all had this happen, if our heart is not focused on this, then we are in our sins. We're still living according to the flesh, and we're not yet studious. Romans 13, for its part, last text, urges believers to wake from sleep. That's Romans 13, 11, and prepare for the coming of Christ to consummate the kingdom. Our focus must be not the flesh or gratifying the desires of the flesh, but rather it must be the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the text that Aquinas quotes, Romans 13, 14. Now for both of these New Testament texts, the key point, the point that um, applies to studiousness, why he's picked them, is that God's people cannot be double-minded. We must focus our minds on the things of God. This primary focus on divine realities is made possible by the Holy Spirit, since without the Spirit we'll inevitably live according to the flesh. As, as Paul says earlier in Romans, the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set me free from the law of sin and death. Romans 8.2. Now Aquinas observes that covetousness craves the acquisition of gain. By contrast, the Christian mind must be focused on God and Christ, and so even though the Christian can and should and will be skilled in earthly things, such skills do not deprive the Christian mind of its primary focus, its primary referring of all things in life to God. That's, that's the point. <coughs> Likewise, Aquinas observes that, quote, man has special affection for those things that foster the flesh. And often, man, quote, man's thoughts are concerned about things that foster his flesh. And that's, that's not a sin for Aquinas. That's not the problem. This, this situation is inevitable. Of course, of course we often think about um, the things that foster our bodily life. Of course that's so. But it can, this can easily distort our intellectual appetite. It can distort our thinking. Studious, the virtue of studiousness is so important um, because it involves a conversion of the mind away from our fallen tendency to focus primarily and also, also even solely on the things that foster our bodily life. Aquinas notes that, quote, studiousness is denominated from being the application of the mind to something. It involves the mind applying itself to seek to know. However, as Aquinas says, many people are too lazy, this is an embarrassing thing to admit, um, for, um, too lazy to bother to seek much knowledge. He points out that as regards knowledge, man has contrary inclinations. For on the part of the soul, he's in, inclined to desire to know things. But unfortunately, on the part of his bodily nature, man is inclined to avoid the trouble of seeking knowledge. Well, how true that is. Study, study tires us out quickly. And it hardly seems to amount to much. Also, another problem with study is, like, does it really amount to much in terms of practical, immediate benefit for ourselves or anyone else? So one fruit of the virtue of studiousness is that it inspires us to seek knowledge more urgently. But Aquinas makes clear that the central purpose of the virtue of studiousness is not, not at all to produce scholars, but to help us avoid the danger of seeking knowledge immoderately. And by moderately, it means in a disordered way, without reference to God. You know, as though we can know anything um, as, as though we're autonomous, as though anything were autonomous, or as though we could possess and lay claim and dominate 
some knowledge, which in fact is there to be, um, all realities are there for us to share and to participate in and to, um, to, to enjoy without cleaving to. Now, a question that Aquinas raises, um, one, one that I think is, is probably popping to your minds right now, is that didn't God create us in his own image? And since God knows everything, surely we too can desire to know without any limit. Raising this issue an objection in the first article of his question on the vice of curiositas, Aquinas cites scripture in support of our unlimited, this is our unlimited quest for knowledge as God's images, since all abundance of knowledge is from God. So this is the objection. Aquinas is using scripture to assist his objection. The objection is not his own position. He quotes Sirach 1.1, all wisdom comes from the Lord, and wisdom of Solomon 7.17, for it's, it's God who gave me unerring knowledge of what exists to know the structure of the world and the activity of the elements. And quote, vast knowledge of earthly things, Aquinas recognizes, cannot be bad or prohibited, since God makes it possible for us to know these things. If all wisdom comes from the Lord, then the possession of wisdom cannot be sinful. This Aquinas agrees with that. By, by knowing wisdom about God and earthly things, we become like God in a way that God himself has made possible. So Aquinas agrees with that too. He quotes 1 Samuel 2, 3, the Lord is a God of knowledge. And in Hebrews 4, 13, before him, before God, no creature is hidden, but all are open and laid bare to the eyes of him. So if we're truly created in the image of God, then surely to seek to be like that of which we are the image, knowing everything, cannot be a vice. Now, there, that's the part he disagrees with. And so he responds, as images of the all-knowing God, our seeking to know must, must be without pride, or else it will be a distortion on the purpose of knowing. So when we seek to know in a virtuous manner, you know, the virtuous students, we fear and obey God, and we turn away from any arrogance. In answering whether we can sin in desiring and seeking knowledge, Aquinas votes four further biblical texts that provide, in his view, the most important foundation um, for an account of how we can sin in the pursuit of knowledge. And these are 1 Corinthians 8, 1, Jeremiah 9, 5, Sirach um, 3, 22, and Colossians 2, 8. So the first verse, 1 Corinthians 8, 1. It helps Aquinas to distinguish between vices that pertain to the use of knowledge and the particular vice, curiositas, opposed to studiousness. Specifically this, curiositas is a vice found in, quote, the desire and study in the pursuit of the knowledge of truth. Paul states, and this is, y'all be familiar with this, this is 1 Corinthians um, 8.1, the text Aquinas cites, knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. If anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know, as he ought to know. But if one loves God, one is known by him. You see, I mean, that's kind of like the central text for studiousness right there. Citing this text, Aquinas observes that knowledge can pump us up in our own estimation when we do not refer all that we know to God, who cannot be captured by our knowing, and who is the source of both our knowing and of all that we know. So when we study in order to take pride in our knowledge, or for some other reason like that, we become puffed up and have traded studios, studiousness for curiosity. Similarly, when we hope to, quote, learn something in order to sin, we've fallen into curiosity. Aquinas applies a warning from Jeremiah to our curious minds, quote, they have taught their tongue to speak lies. And that's Jeremiah 9.5. 
This verse from Jeremiah belongs to God's explanation of the exile of his people, which only Christ's forgiveness of sins and outpouring of the Holy Spirit overcomes. When we desire to know in order to boast or to commit sin, we've forgotten the true goal of knowledge, which is a deeper participation in God through knowing the realities um, that God has made, or through knowing God. Now, you guys, I'm reading, I'm reading all this, but in my back of my mind, I, I, have, I have to confess to you, in the back of my mind is that my daughter turns out to have a sort of like a preternatural ability to, to guess the outcome of sporting events. It's just unbelievable. And so she, she really, she really just knows. She knows who's going to win. I mean, she's just a, she's 15, and a, and she really likes sports. Um, it's, it's her own thing. But so, is that a sin, you guys? We got, we'll talk about that afterwards. That is it a sin for me to want to know from her in order then to become like a compulsive gambler? Um, so that I could, I guess I, I could imagine this, all the good I could do with that money. She's, she's incredibly, she's, she's 95 percent. It's unbelievable. So we got to talk about that afterwards. Um, okay, but I got to get back. I, I, I wasn't concentrating enough on what I was reading. Now I'm going to get back. Uh, now that I've confessed that. Okay, so Aquinas quotes a remark from Augustine to the effect that curious people who know a vast amount about earthly realities but do not know or seek God who is the source of these realities are absurd in their pride. They imagine they know far more than they really do, and their knowledge has failed to apprehend even the most, it's failed to apprehend the most important thing about what they do know, namely that earthly realities are created. So Aquinas adds that our desire to know can be inordinate in one of four ways. The third way that he mentions is the most to be feared. It's the most fundamental. It occurs when, quote, a man desires to know the truth about creatures without referring his knowledge to its due end, namely the knowledge of God. That's the key point. You've got to refer your knowledge to God in some way. Natural scientists, historians, economists, and so forth do not need to become theological scholars, but they do need to understand the things they study with some reference to God, because otherwise they can't properly understand the things they study. It's simply impossible. This is most true, of course, in the human sciences, such as history. But it also fully applies to natural science, because the things studied by natural science cannot be apprehended as self-created without a grave distortion of what they actually are. So if we deliberately cut ourselves off from our knowledge off from God in any area of our desire to know, then we have separated ourselves from the very purpose of knowing, which is to know God and, and to attain thereby to happiness. Obviously, at Christendom, this is a key part of the whole curriculum. Of the other three ways, um, you know, the, the key part being to refer things to God, to learn how to refer things to God, which, which you do here. Of the other three ways in which our desire to know can fall into curiositas, the most common is when we desire to devote our mind to something less important than what our job or vocation requires. For example, if a theologian thinks constantly about sports, <laughs> that's a, not sure where this example came from, but not much, not much fruit will come from the time that the, that the theologian has for study. Although we cannot and should not study all the time, obviously, during the time we have for study, it's necessary that we attend to the important things that should be our central concern. This requires that our desire to know be ordered properly. Secondly, says Aquinas, we can desire to know from teachers who are evil, and he has in mind fortune tellers or experts in the dark arts, even demons. This instruction is forbidden to those who trust in God. 
But, but my daughter, though, it's not fortune telling. So I, I, she, she just seems to know. Okay, the third and final way in which our desire to know can be inordinate happens when, despite the evident limitations of our cognitive capacity, we insist upon trying to know things that are beyond our cognitive limits. You know, this is a good lesson for dumb people like myself. This is just like if, anyhow, the result of such perseverance and study will not be the reward of understanding, but rather will be some kind of error rooted in lack of understanding. In such cases, we refuse, we refuse to accept the God-given limits of our intelligence. When we rebel against divinely inscribed limits, we are implicitly rejecting the fact that the source of our knowledge is God. And as a result, we fall into error in the domain in which we sought truth beyond our ability. And so this is how, in my undergraduate years, I got out of some science classes. I just, I just said, look, I can't. You know, but I fall into error, you know. So here Aquinas cites the warning of Sirach 3.21, seek not what is too difficult for you. You know, such as like chemistry and stuff. That was such a joke. Nor investigate what is beyond your power. Aquinas notes that it is characteristic of curiositas to focus on sense knowledge. He cites 1 John 2.16, we already heard about that, Lust of the Eyes, which he, like Rivas, links with the vice of curiosity in, in which 1 John 2.16 pairs with two other vices focused on sensible things, namely lust of the flesh and the pride of life. The study of sensible things can be directed to sustaining and improving one's bodily life, or to intellective knowledge, whether speculative or practical. In neither of these ways is, is the desire to know sensible things sinful, not at all. It's quite appropriate and wonderful. But it becomes sinful if the desire to know sensible things distracts us from important and useful reflection, or if it directs our mind towards something harmful. So the point is that desiring to know sensible things is commendable in itself, but when such a desire is disordered, the vice of curiosity happily takes over. Although curiosity focuses our minds on sensible things, you know, and we know this to be the case, Aquinas is not saying that the vice of curiosity can only arise with regard to the knowledge of sensible things. As though, as though theologians can not, not be curious, but by no means he's not saying that. He explains that, quote, there may be sin in the knowledge of certain truths, insofar as the desire of such knowledge is not directed in due manner to the knowledge of the sovereign truth, namely God. Because one can seek to know God in a way that is not duly ordered to God. For example, if one seeks to know God out of pride, you know, so as to, as to like win theologian of the year or some other prize like that. Thus, curiosity is not limited to the study of sensible things, but rather curiosity arises whenever the quest to know involves a disordered self-reference, self-reference, rather than a proper God-reference. Since curiosity always involves a disordered self-reference, however, curiosity does direct our, our desire to know away from God, and it does direct us toward earthly things, mainly ourself. As Aquinas and Griffiths emphasize, those who seek to know in a spirit of curiosity will generally be focused on using such knowledge for sin or for bodily profit, leaving God out of the picture. For this reason, the connection between curiosity and the lust of the eyes, described in 1 John 2.16, is quite right. Curiosity generally is about pleasures arising from the knowledge acquired through all the senses. The curious person refers his or her knowledge 
to the self and to the self's pleasures, even when this knowledge is a knowledge of God or other immaterial things rather than solely um, sense knowledge, sensitive knowledge. So we, we got to the conclusion, and the conclusion is really short because I, I cut it down. It was really long, and then I, so I chopped it. It's like two paragraphs, but very short. Okay, the virtuous desire to know, and that's been what this paper's been all about, you know, on studiousness, consists in a desire for participatory intimacy with the reality known. And this participatory intimacy can never be a claim of mastery or ownership of the reality known, since all things must be referred to God. God's their sole owner. And we are only stewards whose knowing involves wonder, praise, and also tremendous limitations. Curiositas, however, involves rejecting this true ordering of things to God. And in its desire for knowledge as exhaustive domination or some sort of mastery or control, it ends up leading to boredom and, in fact, to a desire for novelty as you move from knowing one thing to knowing another thing, rather than to the ongoing deepening of participatory intimacy in, in the realities known that the virtue of studiousness offers. So for Aquinas, the key is to reflect upon the need to moderate our desire to know and to keep this desire rightly ordered. When we desire to know things without acknowledging their reverence to God, this results in a, in a terrible distortion of what things are. But fortunately, through the grace of the Holy Spirit, a studious person desires knowledge, not for mastery and domination, but for intimate and indeed liturgical sharing in God and his gifts. Thank you so much.